Well, I have a uh, modern-day hero, and his picture is actually printed in the bulletin and in the insert. That's Brent McHugh, who's our missionary, um, and he's the head of Christar, and he's a former church member here and got saved through this ministry, through the Alpha program, and then gave up his business uh, career, which was very lucrative and successful, and went to seminary and then went to the global mission field and was so successful in that, he became head of the the global missions for Christar and is now in charge of 300 full-time missionaries. And Brent is my hero because he is incredibly laser-focused on his strategy in obeying the Lord's command to make disciples. And when he was transitioning the uh, organization from Texas to Malaga, Spain, where it now is, he had a brief period where he came to our church and kept an office here for about nine months. And I got to have many helpful interactions with Brent. And one of the things he was doing that I found so interesting is Somehow he had, he had gotten audience with some very deep pockets out in Seattle. I think one of the guys who was in a meeting actually had Mark Zuckerberg's cell phone number. Like these were guys that were the top of the top and had deep pockets. And Brent went in there to make a proposal that they give money for a ministry initiative he had conceived in his mind, and he was asking for $700,000. And they were willing to hear him, and he came in, uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's uh, an Anglican priest, and he's the head of a missions organization, and the guys were expecting the kind of request they typically get. They get pastors with really compassionate hearts who want them to use their money to alleviate the, the hurting of the poor which is a very good thing to do. But Brent came in with a business plan and a strategy, and he had been reading a book. Um, The book was called The Lean Startup, like as in a startup company, by Eric Reese. And he was talking about that, and they went, wait a minute, what are you doing reading that book? And and he explained his strategy, and he made his pitch, and um, they gave him a tenth of what he asked for the first year. This year, they're going to give him a quarter of a million dollars, and we'll see what happens in the third year. But they're kind of testing him, he said. I asked him if I could use this illustration. And, but what they had done is they intuitively understood something that Jesus explicitly teaches, and that is that Christians are not savvy with money like worldly people are. And here comes a pastor with a really savvy plan, not just to alleviate the poor, but a takeover plan. How do we bring the gospel into a culture and then have that go like wildfire through that place? And these were the kind of people that they actually asked him, they said, why should we give money to you to try to convert people instead of giving it to the arms uh, dealers so they can buy guns to, to suppress them with military might? They were asking that question and Brent had an answer. He said, if we convert them, then they're on our side and we've doubled our numbers. And it's immoral to just kill people. And they were taken aback by this. And Brent, though, was so savvy with his business plan. And Jesus said, the sons of light are not. And he challenges us. Now, before I dig into this parable a little bit, I want to point something out. Jesus is a master teacher. And he oftentimes uses things that we would not expect to get our attention. So he is using a parable, which is a made-up story, of a dishonest manager. And he is not commending dishonesty. He is commending the shrewdness of this manager, not his dishonesty. And here's my main point before we dig into the passage. Jesus loves you too much to let you be dominated by money. And instead, he wants to show you how to use money for the kingdom. 
And by money, I'm including all of wealth in that. So he loves you too much to let you be dominated by money. So one of the things about money is that people don't think they have a problem with it. I've had lots of confessions in my office of all sorts of different things, and no one has ever come to me and said, I'm here to confess that I'm an idolater. I love money. Money has the throne. My heart, I'm caught up in greed and covetousness, and at never. It's never happened. I've had lots of other things confessed, but never that in the nine years I've been here as a priest. And the reason is because money is sneaky. It's insidious. It's... Um, it conceals itself, and we don't realize the power it has over us. So I came up with a couple of questions. Since none of us in here have a problem with money, I just thought I'd ask a question. <laughs> a couple, I've got five questions just for, for us to think about. Do I daydream often about things I want to own? You could fill in eBay, Craigslist, uh, Google. What, what am I looking at all day? Is there something I am daydreaming that I wish I owned? Do I fantasize about ways to make more money? How could I get promoted at work? How could I bring home a better bottom line? Am I jealous of other people's stuff? When I see something I like, do I have a pressing desire to possess it? I want that thing. I have to own it. I can't just celebrate that someone else has it or borrow it and give it back without covetousness creeping in. Am I often jealous of other people's wealth? Do I find my security in money? Do I look often at what is the balance of my retirement fund? How much equity do I have this month in my home? What would happen if I got sick? How much health coverage do I have? All these things, do I look to those for security or do I look to God for my security when I feel insecure? Do most of the decisions that I make, this is my last one, do most of the decisions that I make include the saying, do we have enough money for that? Instead of, is God calling me to that? Is money making the decision or is God making the decision? I recognize that these are dangerous questions. And um, I was thinking about uh, something that I learned on the construction sites when I was an engineer, that when they opened up the electrical panel and all that power was there, they kept a hand behind their back and would go in with the screwdriver because they could so easily complete a circuit and short their heart out and die. So one screwdriver. And I recognize I've just opened up an electrical panel and I've got my screwdriver <laughs> and I'm messing with you because it's messing with me. Because I read that list and I think, oh my goodness, I thought it was great to preach through the lectionary because then I could preach all these hard topics, but the problem is I have to preach all these hard topics to all of us. I can't just jump over the ones that make me uncomfortable. This is hard. This is hard for all of us, and it's essential to life. There's not a person in here who does not have to deal with the issue of wealth in this life. Not one. Whether you're poor or rich, it doesn't matter. We all have to deal with it, and Jesus loves us too much to let us be mastered by it. Jesus says in Luke 12, take care, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. He actually warns us of its danger. He doesn't do that with other things. And I love the wit of Tim Keller who says, you don't find yourself in the bed of someone else's spouse and suddenly go, wait a minute, could this be, could, could I be in adultery? It never happens. You know what you're doing every step all the way, but not so with money and unrighteous wealth. It, you, don't, you suddenly realize, maybe I am an idolater. Maybe I am in the grips of wealth. Maybe it is controlling me, and I didn't even realize it. Now, um, 
This parable is spoken to disciples. Look at verse 1 of Luke 16. It says, he also said to the disciples. So Jesus is teaching his followers here. And you have, to, you have to get the whole sweep of his teaching because last week he was speaking to the Pharisees who were grumbling because he was receiving sinners. So we looked at three parables. The parable, well, we looked at two of them, but there's three in, in sequence. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And what I said to you last week was, just let the grace of God wash over you that he loves you so much that he will go and seek you out at great personal expense to win your heart and save you. It is not about what you do to earn that. He does that to go and save you. He's just taught that. So I am presuming his audience here are already people who've said, I want you to be the Lord of my life. They are disciples. And then a loving savior warns them, warns us about how to handle wealth. And he comes up with this parable and he, he, just like any parable, it's a made up story, but there's a manager. He's got a bunch of wealth. He's got, um, his, his, He's done something dishonest with it, and his boss has found out. And his boss comes to him and says, give an, give an account. You can no longer work for me. And he's, you know, he, he comes up with a scheme so that people will receive him when he no longer has that position. And his boss commends him for it. Probably, if I had to guess, because the boss is implicated somehow in some dishonest work. He's not just going to say, I'm taking you to court and we're going to get this solved. And I'm going to bring every one of those creditors in here and you're going to find out. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to get it back. He, he doesn't. He just simply says, well played, my friend. <laughs> and, and then that's, but he commends him though for his shrewdness. Now again, Jesus is not commending the dishonesty. He's telling this, making up this story to commend the shrewdness with which this man acted. He thought through the situation and he realized, how can I get this wealth to serve my need. And Jesus is saying, and, and here's, the, here's the tough verse, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with one another, with their own generation, than are the sons of light. And then he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, there are two shockers in here. There is the statement that wealth is actually unrighteous. And as much as we try, we have to wrestle with that because I want to say money's neutral. In fact, before I really dug into this passage, I even said to Heather, I have a book that the title is Money, Sex, and Power. You know, the big three. That's the title right on the top. And I said, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong about these three things. It's when a deeper, a deeper sin gets a hold of them. So it's not that money's inherently wrong. It's just when greed and covetousness come under it. It's not that sex is wrong. It's that when lust gets control of it. It's not that power is wrong. It's when pride gets control of it. And then I read Jesus's words and he said, unrighteous wealth. And I realized, uh, I think wealth might actually have been um, hijacked and it is now bent on evil and it is not neutral. It's very powerful, in fact, and Jesus is warning us about that. It has a fallen nature to it, and that shocks us that he calls it unrighteous wealth. And I love the expression, filthy lucre. I just really like that word, lucre. Filthy lucre, or some, you know, dirty money. That expression came up out of the general culture. That's not like a Christian term. Even the culture recognizes the corrupting influence of wealth. It's far more than just a means of economic exchange. It has a life of its own, and that life is bent towards unrighteous things, not natural goodness. Now, God is good, and he's saying use it for good, but recognize its tendency. 
I don't know if it's a helpful parallel, but Heather and I were also talking about the Lord of the Rings. And the ring, the ring of power, corrupts anyone who tried to use it for good. And I said, but the ring was made by a dark lord. Everything we're talking about was made by a good lord. So it can be redeemed and used in a, in a kingdom way. But recognize the temptation. Recognize its tendency is towards control. It wants to control your heart. It's insidious. It's sneaky. And the problem about it is we compare ourselves again with the wrong person. When your righteousness is up for question, you compare yourself with Hitler. When your wealth is in question, who do you compare yourself to? You look around your own socioeconomic bracket and then you find someone who has something a little better, a little nicer, and you go, well, I'm not rich like that person. However, the rest of the world is not at all fooled by that. They look right into us in our wealthy, arguably the wealthiest country in the world, and they go, that's rich. I want that. I want to be where you are. We don't look at those places and go, I am rich. We look at somebody else. And so we don't think that we are in the, in the clutches of this idol at all because we're comparing to the wrong thing. That's part of why it's so dangerous. So Jesus is saying wealth is unrighteous. And then he says, use it to make friends. And that's shocking to us. Why would I use, un- what? To make friends? And to make friends that will receive me into eternal dwellings. The whole thing seems strange. And he says, it's going to fail. Unrighteous wealth is going to fail. Therefore, use it now to make friends for uh, receiving you into eternal dwellings. He's talking about heaven here and the thing that comes after this life. So what is one thing that you know for sure will be a part of heaven? People. There will be people in heaven. Jesus elsewhere says, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. And although this is partially true, it's not entirely true when people say you can't take money with you. You can't, if you think like King Tut, put it all in my pyramid tomb and bury me with it and I get it on the other side. But you can take it with you if you do a currency exchange. One of the authors I read used the analogy of the American dollar to the British pound. He said, imagine that in the near future, but you don't know when, the United States government is going to convert all of its currency to the British pound. And you don't know the date, so what is the wise or shrewd thing to do? Well, it's to convert as much of your wealth over to British pounds as you can and only hold on to enough American currency to live day by day, right? That would be the wise thing to do. Now, when it comes to storing up treasures in heaven and the fact that friendship is in view here and there are people in heaven, use your wealth now to build kingdom relationships because that will actually transcend the grave. I'm going to see you in heaven. And I can do things with my wealth and you can do things with your wealth to influence those relationships towards the kingdom of God. That's what he's teaching us here. Now, I need to say something to you if you're not sure if you're a believer. You're still wrestling with this Christianity thing. You're not, you wouldn't necessarily at least publicly admit that you're considering Jesus. Let's say you're kind of in that in-between zone. In, in this passage, remember I said there are two groups of people. Here he's talking to the disciples, but the Pharisees are listening in. Because when you go a little further, what you find is that it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And here's what I want to say to you. Wealth can never fully satisfy you. 
It's never satisfied any person ever in all of history fully. It just doesn't have that capability because only God can. It's not possible. Jesus, however, does promise to satisfy you. And not only that, make you able to receive the blessings that he wants to give to you. So how can you receive God's blessings and not become controlled by them? Well, you have to hear what Jesus has to say and recognize who he is. I love what the Apostle Paul says on this topic. He says, for you know, he's talking about money here and encouragement to give generously. He says to the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. When you recognize how much Jesus gave up to come and rescue you and the wealth you get when you get him, all that other stuff pales in comparison. If I have Christ, what more do I need? And because I have Christ, he's so generous, there's other stuff that comes with it. And what he wants me to do is receive his love and then learn how to use unrighteous mammon for his kingdom without it using me and taking control of me. That's what he wants for us. To be able to use it without getting enslaved. Now, for Christians, for disciples, for those who've committed their lives to Jesus, you are being prepared for true riches. He goes on and he says, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And he doesn't expound that. He doesn't say anything more about what that is. There's a great mystery there. But if we're talking about the wealth of all the kingdoms of this world, and he's calling that unrighteous, and he's saying there is true riches that he wants to put you in charge of, this world and these, the wealth of this world is a testing ground for us. It's pre preparing us for managing true riches. I can't even conceive in my mind what that could be, but I know it's coming because Jesus said it. He's preparing us. So he wants us to take the long view on this. Don't think next week, next year, or even uh, next decade. Think the next life. What does it look like for me to use wealth to be prepared for managing God's stuff in the next life and to learn to not be controlled by it? I think it's fascinating when we look at both Paul and Jesus. Jesus at times said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He didn't even have a pillow. He didn't have a bed. And yet he was being accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he went to parties and he dined with the wealthy as well as the poor. He was able to move in and out. He had, there, there were a number of women who were very wealthy that were underwriting his ministry and paying for things for him and his disciples. But at other times he was out in the middle of nowhere with no food and they would go without. He fasted, but then he feasted, and it was like he was able to move in and out of that with no, no risk of it controlling him. And the Apostle Paul, who is not Jesus, but is still very full of the Holy Spirit, learned, and in, in, in the end of Philippians says, I've learned how to be brought high and to be without. He's learned the secret of contentment. And he says, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he has grown into. So, how do we invest our wealth in kingdom relationships? What are some specific things? And how do we, how do we think shrewdly about it? Well, we have to think about it, first of all. When I asked you all those questions about money to start this sermon off, most of those things happen because you're not intentionally thinking about what you're thinking about. You're just letting, almost like daydreaming, like, oh, I w really wish I had that, or that's a really nice thing over there. You start to look at it, and it kind of pulls you in, and it's sort of, and you find yourself daydreaming about it. Instead of saying, take every thought captive for Christ, what 
is it that I should be doing with wealth? What should my, my approach be to it? How can I use it well? We actually have to think about that and be intentional. Now, let's consider some, I'll call them non-economic uses. In other words, more than just purchasing power. Money is used for a lot more than just an exchange of material goods. In a negative sense, it can be used to bully people. But in the hands of a savvy Christian, it can be used to free people or empower them. I think about ministries to um, less developed areas of the world where people are making microeconomic loans available not to do a handout, but rather to help somebody use their gifts to build a business and build up their local economy. And they do it at a very low interest rate to help those people. And what it does is instead of bullying people or suppressing them with poverty, it empowers them to use their gifts to, to have a business that is successful. And it lifts them up. It frees them in some ways. Money has the power to enslave or to free. And in the hands of a Christian who's thinking kingdom and thinking relationships, how can I use wealth to free people who are currently enslaved because of economics or wherever they live. It can buy prestige. You can use wealth to have people look at you and go, wow, he's really important. That's not great. You could also use wealth to have people go, wow, his God is really important. We can elevate Christ and have people see the fame of our God. We can increase his fame in the world. So when someone says to you that you've been successful, you recognize very quickly yeah, I might have did that whatever at work, and yes, I won that award, but who gave me the, the intellect to be able to do it? Who gave me the physical energy to work my body to do that thing? Who provided the education for me or the family I was born into that helped me get through college? Who, at the end of the day, it all goes back to God, and so you go, God actually won that award at work. I did my part, but he did the heavy lifting. He set me up for success. Praise be to God. And we give him the glory. And I'm not talking about, you know, the, the kind of trendy, I caught a touchdown and I go like this to God. And then I'm like doing my dance. Look at me. But really honestly going, that success happened because God set me up for it. And I'm giving him all of the glory. So we can, we can also use it to enlist allegiances. Sometimes people do that to make bad allegiances, but it can be done to make good allegiances. What Brent McHugh was trying to do was get wealthy people to come on to the mission of Christar and help that ministry go forward. And that's, that's all about using money to create a group that's all moving in the same direction. Um, another one would be just corrupting people through bribes. That happens all the time in this world. But money can also be used to heal people. You know, we, we can build things with resources that can be healing places, hospitals, counseling centers, a number of other things, homes for poor, all kinds of stuff. There are ways that it can be leveraged to set people free and to heal. Now, that back to the question of, do I ask, do we have enough to pay for that? There is ample evidence out there in church history and in many of, many of your lives and definitely my life of asking God for something because we've asked him what we should do and he told us to do something. So God, should I go on that mission trip instead of do we have enough money to go on that mission trip? And if God says yes, then the, then the answer is okay. I know you pay for what you order, God. How are we going to make it happen? Show me the way. And I've had, a, I've had a personal powerful experience with that very prayer and God provided airfare free in a contest I didn't even know I was in. Because I didn't say, do we have enough money to go on this mission trip? Heather and I said, 
is God calling us to go to this? And we felt like he was. But, but then we said, okay, God, how does this work? He provided luggage. He provided airfare. It was incredible. Ask Heather and ask me about it some other time. But um, God has done that in numerous people's lives because they start by saying, Lord, what can I do for your kingdom? What are you asking me to do? That prayer there is so powerful. And I think we have to step back and go, okay, Lord, this is a dangerous topic. And I, I'm recognizing the temptation here. And I want to first confess these things to you. And I want you to help me take them off my heart. Get them off the throne in my heart so that you can be my Lord. And now, now that you're in the right place, how do I use this for your kingdom? How do I invest in relationships? Which relationships? And at that point, it's personal. Because what God is calling you to do with your resources might be the complete opposite of what he's calling me to do with mine. So we each have to go to him and ask. And he will provide guidance on this. He's got it in his word, and he'll provide it in your prayer life as well. So I want to encourage you to pray to him, but understand that he loves you, and he's already saved you, and now he's preparing you for eternity. So it's all the, all the heavy lifting's done. All the work is done for you. Now it's learning, it's learning from the master. How do I use wealth in a way that builds your kingdom and doesn't enslave me again? That's the prayer. So I commend it to you, and let's, let's pray now and, and ask the Lord for help with this, this hot topic.